0: Section 36 of LAY DOWN YOUR ARMS This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. LAY DOWN YOUR ARMS by Bertha von Suttner Translated by Timothy Holmes Chapter 9, Part 2 What is this Prussia up to now? Such was the question, indicating mischief. Which Austria, the central states, and the duchies kept always asking. Napoleon III advised Prussia to annex the duchies up to North Schleswig, where they speak Danish, but Prussia was not thinking of that for the moment. At last, on February 22, 1865, her claims were formulated to this effect Prussian troops to remain in the countries, the latter to put their defensive forces under Prussian leadership, with the exception of a contingent of troops of the Bund the harbour of Kiel to be occupied, posts and telegraphs to be Prussian, and the duchies to be compelled to join the Tulverine. Of these demands, our minister, Mensdorf Puli, complained, I do not know why. And still further, again I have no why, presumably out of envy, that distinctive feature in the conduct of external relations, the central states complained also. They vehemently demanded that the Augustenburg should, with all speed, be at once inducted into the government of the Duchies. Austria, however, had something to say also, and what she said was this. She treated the Augustenburg as non-existent, was willing to consent to the possession by Prussia of the Kiel Harbor, but stood out against the right of recruiting and pressing sailors. And so the quarrel went on without cessation. Prussia declared that her demands were made only in the interests of Germany, that she did not wish for annexation. Augustenberg might enter on his inheritance, if he accepted the demands laid down, but if these necessary and moderate claims were not granted, then, with voice raised to the pitch of threatening, perhaps she would be compelled to demand more. Against this menacing voice other voices were raised in scorn, in mockery, in provocation. In the Central States and in Austria, public opinion became daily more and more embittered against Prussia and especially against Bismarck. On June 27, the central states accepted a motion to request information from the great powers. But as giving information is not the habit of diplomacy, but keeping everything snug and secret, the great powers negotiated in private. King William traveled to Gastein, the Emperor Francis Joseph to Ischl, Count Bloma fitted hither and thither between them, and an agreement was arrived at on certain points. The occupation was to be half Austrian and half Prussian. Lauenberg, according to her own wish, was to be united to Prussia. For this, Austria was to receive as compensation two and a half millions of dollars. This last result was not calculated to inspire me with patriotic joy. What good could this insignificant sum do to the thirty-six millions of Austrians, even if it was to be divided among them? Which was not the case. Would it replace the hundreds of thousands which, for example, I had lost with Schmitt and Sons? Or, still more, the losses of those who were mourning for their dear ones? What pleased me was a treaty which was signed at Gastein on August 14th. Treaty. The word sounds so promising of peace. It was not till afterwards that I learned that international treaties very often only serve, by means of importuned violations of them, to introduce what is called Casus belli. Then it is only necessary for one party to charge the other with a breach of treaty, and immediately the swords spring out of their sheaths, with all the appearance of a defense of violated rights. Still, the Gastein treaty brought me repose. The quarrel seemed to be laid aside. General Goblins, handsome general Goblins, for whom all we ladies had a slight penchant, the Stadtholder in Holstein, Manteuffel in Schleswig, I had at last to give up my favorite security, enacted in the year 1460, that the countries should remain together, forever undivided. As far as concerned my Augustenberg, for whose rights I had with so much trouble got up some warmth, it happened that this prince went on one occasion into his country and received the homage of his adherents, on which Montoeufel signified to him that if he ever ventured to come into those parts again without permission, he would unquestionably have him arrested. Whoever cannot see in that a good joke of Muse Cleo's can have no comprehension of the comicalities of history. In spite of the Gastein Treaty, the situation would not calm down. And as I now, being alarmed by Aunt Mary's letter and the explanations of it which I received, resumed the regular perusal of the political leading articles and collected intelligence from all sides about the opinions which gained currency. I was in a position to follow once more, with accuracy, the phases of the varying strife. That the latter would lead to a war, I did not apprehend. Such legal questions would have to be brought to an issue in the legal way, that is, by weighing the claim of right on the two sides, and by a sentence consequent on this. All these consultative meetings of ministers and assemblies, these negotiating statesmen and monarch in friendly intercourse, would surely settle the debated points, which were in themselves so trivial. It was with more curiosity than anxiety that I followed the course of this incident, the different stages of which I find noted in my red volumes. October 1, 1865. In the assemblage of delegates at Frankfurt, the following conclusions were accepted. 1. The right of the people of Schleswig-Holstein to decide on their own destiny remains in force. The Gastine Treaty is rejected by the nation as a breach of right. 2. All representatives of the people are to refuse all taxes and expenses to such governments as assert the policy of violence hitherto followed. October 15. The Prussian Crown syndic gave his judgment on the hereditary rights of Prince Augustenburg. The father of the latter had renounced for himself and his posterity his succession to the throne for a sum of one and a half million of specie dollars. The duchies were surrendered in the Treaty of Vienna. The Augustenburg had no claims at all upon them. An impudence, an assumption, such were the terms applied to this speech delivered at Berlin, and the arrogance of Prussia became a catchword. We must protect ourselves against it, was accepted as dogma of all kinds. King William seems disposed to play the part of the German Victor Emmanuel. Austria's secret motives to reconquer Silesia. Prussia is paying court to France. Austria is paying court to France. It patati, it patata, as the French say. Trich Trotch is the German name for it, and it does not go on more busily in the coffeehouse coteries of country towns than between the cabinets of great powers. The winter brought my whole family back to Vienna. Rosa and Lily had amused themselves very much in the bohemian watering places, but neither was engaged. Conrad's affairs were in an excellent way. In the shooting season he was to come to Grumitz, and, although at this crisis the decisive word had not yet been spoken, still both were inwardly convinced that they would end in being united. Neither at this autumn shooting season did I make my appearance, in spite of my father's pressing persuasions. Frederick could not get any leave and to separate from him was to exist in such sorrow as I would not expose myself to, without necessity. A second reason for not passing any length of time at my father's was that I did not wish to expose my little Rudolph to his grandfather's influence, whose effort, always, was to inspire the child with military tastes. The inclination for this calling, to which I was thoroughly averse as a profession for my son, had been awakened in him without this. Probably it was in his blood, The scion of a long race of soldiers must, by nature, bring warlike instincts into the world with him. In the works on natural science, whose study we were now pursuing more eagerly than ever, I had learned about the power of heredity, of the existence of so-called congenital instincts, which are nothing but the impulse to put in action the customs handed down from our ancestors. On the boy's birthday, the grandfather was careful to bring him again a saber, But you know, father, I remonstrated, that my son will certainly not become a soldier, and I must really beg you seriously. What, do you want him to tie to his mother's apron-strings? I hope you will not succeed there. Good soldier's blood is no liar. Let the fellow only grow up, and he will soon choose his profession for himself, and there is no finer one than that which you want to forbid him. Martha is frightened, said Aunt Mary, who was present at this conversation, of exposing her only son to danger. But she forgets that if one is destined to die, the fate will overtake one in one's bed, as surely as in battle. Then suppose one hundred thousand men to have fallen in war. They would have all been killed in peace too? Aunt Mary was not at a loss for an answer. It was the destiny of these one hundred thousand to die in war. But if men had the sense not to begin any war, I suggested, oh, but that is an impossibility cried my father, and then the conversation turned again into a controversy such as my father and I used to often wage, and always on the same lines, on the one side the same assertions and principles, on the other the same counter-assertions and opposite principles. There is nothing to which the fable of the hydra is so applicable as to some standing difference of opinion. No sooner have you cut one head off the argument and settled yourself to send the second the same way, when, lo, the first has grown again. Thus my father had one or two favorite positions in favor of war, which nothing could uproot. 1. Wars are ordained by God himself, the Lord of hosts, see the holy scriptures. 2. There have always been wars, and, consequently, there will always be wars. 3. Mankind, without this occasional decimation, would increase at too great a rate. 4. Continual peace relaxes, effeminates, produces, like stagnant order, corruption, especially the degeneration of morals. 5. Wars are the best means for putting in practice self-sacrifice, heroism, in short, the firmer elements of character. 6. Men will always contend. Perfect agreement in all their views is impossible. Divergent interests must be always impinging on each other. Consequently, everlasting peace is a contradiction in terms. None of these positions, in particular none of these consequenties contained in them, could be kept standing if stoutly attacked but each of them served the defender as a bulwark if compelled to let another of them fall and while the new bulwark was being reduced to ruins he had been setting the old one up again for example if the champion of war driven into a corner has to confess that peace is more worthy of humanity more rich in blessing more favorable to culture than war he says oh yes war is an evil, but it is inevitable. And then follows numbers 1 and 2. Then if one shows that it could be avoided, and how, by alliances of states, arbitration courts, and so forth, then comes the reply, oh yes, war could be avoided, but it ought not. And then comes number 4 and 5. Then if the advocate of peace upsets these objections, and goes on to prove that, on the contrary, War hardens men and dehumanizes them? Oh yes, I allow that. But, number three, this argument too is overthrown, for it is admitted that nature herself will see that the trees do not grow up to the sky, and wants no assistance from man to that end. This again turns out not to be the result which the professor of force has in view in making war. Granted, but number one, and so there is no end to the debate. The advocate of war is always in the right. His reasoning moves in a circle where you may always follow, but can never catch him. War is a horrible evil. It must exist. I grant it is not a necessity, but it is a great good. This want of consecutiveness, of logical honesty. All those people incur who defend a cause on principles which are not axiomatic or else with no principles, merely from instinct, and to that end, will make use of all such phrases or commonplaces as may have come to their ears, and which have obtained currency in the maintenance of that cause. That these arguments do not proceed from the same points of view, that accordingly they not only do not support each other, but even do directly neutralize each other, makes no matter to them. It is not because this or that reasoning has originated from their own reflections, or is in harmony with their own convictions, that it comes into their train of argument, they merely use to bolster the latter up, without any selection, the conclusions which others have thought out. All this might not have been so clear to me at that time when I was disputing with my father on the topic of peace and war. It was not till later on that I had accustomed myself to follow, with attention, the movements of the intellect in my own and other people's heads. I only recollect that I will always come away from these discussions in the highest degree fatigued and excited, and now see that this fatigue proceeded from this pursuing in a circle which my father's way of argument necessitated. This conclusion was, however, every time a compassionate shrug of the shoulders on his part, with the words, You do not understand that. Words which, as he was treating of military matters, sounded certainly very well deserved in the mouth of an old general as addressed to a young lady. End of section 36